This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, we're going to talk about loggers today on the podcast, and my guests for that are Carlton Graham and Steve Holly of KC Beer Company. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, great to be here. We've got another remote edition of the podcast, um, but we're enjoying our, our own face-to-face conversation via digital means. Uh, I, it's sadly too early in the morning for me to have a pint of your Hellas or Pilsner or Dunkel in front of me. Uh, I wish I did. Um, nonetheless, we're going to talk about how they have crafted some of these iconic beers for their uh, their lager-focused German-style brewing company in Kansas City. Uh, one of their beers, the Hellas, was a beer of the year for craft beer and brewing last year, so congratulations on that. We're going to delve into um, you know their what makes their lagers special. Before we do that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River and Nkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GND Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly crafted brewed versions of classic lagers, let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbring.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So, Steve and Carlton, uh, we typically start off the podcast with a little bit of, a little bit of history on you all. Uh, maybe, Steve, walk me first through uh, you know a couple-minute history and how you got to where you are owning the brewery. And then, Carlton, if you want to pick up from there and kind of share how you got to where you are now and uh, how this interest in this kind of focus on lager brewing uh, built for both of you all. So uh, my family's G- German by ethnic background. My father still spoke German as a child growing up in the Midwest in a small town. So um, I was used to having a beer with my dad uh, growing up, and, and there was always something that was a familiar thing uh, in our household and, and we enjoyed with uh, uh, family and f- friends. But uh, I, because of my dad's background, I studied German in high school and college, and then I spent a semester overseas in Hamburg as a college student. So I got immersed into the culture and got exposed to some better beers. And then that interest carried over uh, later in life. I got into home brewing and then I started uh, writing for magazines and then did a couple of book projects with the Master Brewers Association. So uh, this became kind of a a calling due to my uh, family background and connection to Germany and the love of the beers I developed when I was uh, living over there. So it became a pursuit, sort of a calling. Uh, It's a an area of brewing that a lot of brewers don't focus on. And I felt like there was a niche that we could work in and, and still enjoy it because these are the beers that Carlton and I really like to make. Carlton. 
Yeah, so I was, uh, you know, at another career in a different kind of business for many years, and then I was one of those home brewers that uh, kind of found a way to get involved in in uh, being part of the business. Uh, so I went to the uh, Siebel Institute Master Brewer Program uh, the spring of uh, 2012. Hey, guys, if you're listening, miss y'all. Um, uh, and then actually it was one of the stories that gets told often around here is the story of how I got connected to Steve and, and Kansas City Beer Company. Um, he had this brewery in planning uh, well before he met me, and he had actually sent off to the Dumans Academy in Munich uh, to put a job posting up on a wall up there, looking for a German-trained brewer from the Dumans Academy to come out and help start the brewery and, and help kind of be the, the first brewer at the brewery. And I just happened to be there at, at the Dumans Academy in Munich at the time that he put that job posting up there. And I happened to live three miles from where the, I mean, back in Kansas yeah. City, I lived three miles away from where, uh, at the time, the most likely and what ended up being the location of the brewery. So there's a lot of uh, um, just pure coincidence and, and luck involved with that. A kismet, um, right? Kismet would be the, the yeah. word. You know, some some cosmic coalescing of forces that just uh, that led it into being. Um, you know, so as you think about you know creating this uh, you know German style brewery together, um, talk to me a little bit about how you, uh, you kind of envisioned what you're going to make, how you're going to sell it, um, how it was going, how you're going to differentiate this kind of beer, what it was going to be that sets it apart from other styles. I mean, this I think becomes kind of a, a common question that I have for brewers that that. Building personality in lager brewing is such a finely tuning, you know, fine-tuned process. Um, how did you all work together to kind of construct this idea of what your approach to, to lager brewing and German-style brewing is going to be? Carlton, I'll take a shot at that yep, first. So um, so I, I had attended a short course at Durman's Academy also, and then prior to opening the brewery, I, I don't know how many dozens of breweries I, I visited uh, with some other brewer friends, one of which is Bill I, who's the owner of Bierstadt Lagerhouse. Bill and I spent a lot of time talking to brewers in, in Germany, but basically just observed and we talked to the brewers about how they made their beer. And um, I, I, I studied for uh, the uh, Institute of Brewing and Distilling exams um, for a diploma brewer designation, but in studying for that, many of the texts I read were, were German brewing texts, uh, Kunze in particular. But uh, so I had some background in how Germans made beer, but we went and visited all these breweries and we saw how they did it. And then um, the ones that we thought were really the, the good ones, which uh, Augustiner, uh, Andex, um, somebody that you interviewed or had for a, an article here, uh, Schunram with Eric Toft. You saw what they they did. Um, it, it was decoction mashing, two stage um, fermentation, and then lagering, cold lagering. Just we kind of wanted to follow what the places that made really good beer and try to be really um, uh, true to, to that tradition of, of brewing. And what I've always said is that I think one of the uh, 
pitfalls of, of making lager beer, it, it's a long, slow process. And there are a lot of times where you can skip one step. Well, no one's going to notice that. And I can skip another step and no one's going to notice that. But then you end up uh, having skipped a bunch of steps and then you, you do notice. But it just it's time, patience, uh, cold uh, temperatures, and just taking care of all the little things because lager is a subtle beer and subtleties only come out when you pay attention to the details when you start thinking about um you know ingredients and flavor in your lager beers talk to me a little bit about how you think about ingredients and um you know and build these kinds of flavor profiles that are substantial and interesting but not too interesting i mean that also becomes that challenge with lager brewing that um you're trying to eke out character but also not push too far and go overboard on that talk to me a little bit about how you think about that i'll let carlton answer that well (laughs) um actually it would be better if steve answered because this is one of his favorite one of his favorite things to talk about is the uh the difference between malt uh, that you might source from the United States versus Europe and the hops as well. You've got to use noble hops from Germany to get the right flavor. Um, and I think what a, f- uh, a phrase that's often used when talking about these German lager beers is that it's, it tastes right, that it has the right flavor. Um, and I think what that's referring to is is that it tastes like Ondex Edelstoff, or it tastes like um, I'm sorry, Augustine or Edelstoff or uh, or the Ondex Doppelbach. Yeah, or, you know, I like the Tegern C as well. But if it tastes like some of those beers or tastes very similar to those beers that are considered truly the greatest examples of their style, then you're probably doing something right. Um, and why are those beers so popular and thought of to be so fantastic? Um, a lot of people would have a hard time describing it it's just that je ne sais quoi, it's that, that untouchable character that when you drink the beer, you know that it's good, it's well-made, and that you want to drink it again, and it just has that high degree of drinkability. Um, so <clears throat> I actually kind of forgot the, the exact point of the question <laughs> at this point, but, but just like Steve alluded to in his last um, answer was, is that we're, we're trying to do things the way that, that they're done to achieve that particular flavor that right flavor uh for each of our styles but you know even within the world of german brewing there are differing flavors between those kind of paragon breweries that you're looking for and figuring out where you are going to land you know part of it is also a process of understanding what your brewing system and what ingredients, you know, walking through your water and, uh, you know, uh, the, all of these other things impact that kind of flavor. Maybe, maybe we should approach it from a different direction and, and talk about what, as you started brewing and started honing these things. And when I say that, I mean, you didn't start brewing the exact beer you wanted to brew right out of the gate. I'm sure it was a good beer. I'm sure some of these were good. They just weren't exactly what you wanted because every kind of, you know, every process of lager brewing is a process of fine tuning, honing and getting better at it as you brew. Um, Maybe talk to me about some of the things, you know, from that initial start of brewing that you started to tweak to bring, you know, kind of, 
whole, um, you know, your Hellas and Pilsner into focus, um, you know, that it was, you know, that, uh, you know, was there that kind of process of, of kind of molding and shaping and learning from, you know, as you were brewing to kind of make very small tweaks, you know, to kind of, to bring it exactly to where you wanted it to be. I'll give that one to the head brewer. Well, so I think what you're talking about there is just different adjustments that we've made um, over time to try to either make it easier to brew a beer that's just just as good or to try to improve the overall quality of the beer. And to answer that question, you're kind of talking about the story of adding technology to the brewery. Um, the very first batch of Hellas that we ever made here, which was the very first batch of beer I think that we ever made, that we ever brewed, um, I think was, I still consider it to be just about the best batch of Hellas that we ever made. Um, and part of that, I think, was because we were just filling the fermenters up halfway. And I think I capped the tank a little sooner than you would normally, thinking it had to fill that, all that headspace with pressure. Uh, before it could naturally carbonate the beer fully. And uh, I really liked the sulfur quality of that first batch of beer. Uh, I think it had a really unique flavor that I almost will never forget. So, But as time has gone on, we've added a couple thousand barrels of cellar capacity and a centrifuge and a bottle machine and you know um, a, a lot of equipment around here as we've grown. So it's it's not possible to make the beer exactly the way that first batch was made. And then each time something changes, you have to sort of compensate um, maybe in another way to try to keep that beer um, tasting fantastic. So, um, and that, but just that just has to do with the, uh, with the equipment that we have. I don't think that any uh, aspect of the brewing process, fermentation or cellaring, I mean, those are all basically set in stone. The only thing that we've tweaked is the gravity um, of the beers, maybe to see if we like the way it tasted a little bit lower gravity or a little bit not really higher gravity, but we've, we've played around with lower gravity versions of most of our beer. Um, and then you just have to try to try to manage that natural carbonation and the centrifuge process and the packaging so that you end up with a bottle of beer that tastes the way that you want it to. When you say gravity, um, you know, even, let's talk about Pilsner and Hellas in that regard. What kind of range are you talking about? Where, where do you, where are you now, and uh, where have those experiments taken you? Though so we've always been at the sort of the higher end of starting gravity for our uh, our Hellas and Pilsner, I guess, uh, compared to maybe other examples that you would find from uh, breweries that make a lot of beer like we do, like Hellas and Dunkel. So our Hellas has started out at 13 Play-Doh, uh, which would be sort of in that Edelstoff range, I think, and not really in the standard Augustine or Hellas range. But we have tried making that beer with uh, lower starting gravity on several occasions over the years. I think that those decisions were driven a little bit by believing it would do better in competitions, believe it or not. Um, or also that maybe people would find it a beer that you could have four of instead of three of if it had just a little a little less sugar in it at the end. Um, but we've gone back to 13 Plato Hellas. Um, we, we just we like it more 
and it's <laughs> you know yeah. it's the I don't know if it, if it still is, but for ninety percent of the time we've been open, our beer garden and, and tasting hall Hellas was the number one selling beer um, that we would serve here on site. All the regulars love it and drink it. All the people that work here love it and drink it. So um, we we've gone back to thirteen Plato after a little bit of playing around with twelve twelve and a half. Yeah, Pilsner is a similar story. Uh, but it has stayed lower. Uh, so, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, it started at twelve, right? And we tried eleven and a half and eleven, but I think we're at eleven and a half right now. Right. And um, and the other the other things that we've tried with Pilsner is just changing the hops. Uh, of course, like you like any brewer would, you kind of try a couple different approaches. Um, we used to put a lot of hops in at the end of the boil um, that were type 90 hops. Um, and Steve felt like, um, and, and others felt like there was just a little, just a little bit of a maybe grassy note that came from adding so much vegetal matter right at the end of the uh, boiler in the whirlpool for Pilsner. So we actually, after, it wasn't easy, but we actually tracked down some type 45 hops um, so that we could get the same amount of, you know, presumably oil, acid, um, uh, IBU addition at the, at the end of a boiler in Whirlpool, but add way less vegetal matter. So we could sort of tweak that little flavor aspect of our Pilsner. And we've stuck with that um, since we found those hops and bought them. Our best-selling beers are Donkel. It's a 13 right. Play-Doh um, Munich-style Dunkel, it's about seventy percent of all the beer we sell. So we're we're thankful that we have a flagship that gets put on tap in in most of the local bars and restaurants. It's very popular. And as Carlton said, when I mentioned that uh, people that tell me how great that beer is, I go, you you know what? Nope, none of the brewers drink that beer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, they do, but it, you know, their choice after sh- shift beer is. is Pills or Hellas usually, sure. and I said even even the people that, that come in, but I think that's been one of the, the the challenges. I think there's such a mindset that a pale lager has to be really light in body, um, or it's it. I think it's still no matter people are comparing it to a d- domestic lager, and there's something wrong with it if it has any flavor at all. But but that's why I, Hellas is my favorite beer that we make. And I and I like it just because it, it's it's a malty beer, but it's 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 pale malt, and a pale beer can be malty and round and full and flavorful. Uh, and the other thing I like to say all the time, you compare it to to uh, artisanal homemade bread, where you've gotten good flour and you've used a very unique yeast strain. If you kneaded the dough and you've taken days to make this perfect loaf of bread instead of just putting uh, red star yeast and uh, all-purpose flour in a bread maker you both ways you get bread but i think it's like beer with with a true german style pale lager it takes time but it but you get this wonderful subtle rich um but highly drinkable beer and uh, one of the other things i i said i don't apologize that most of our beers are very refreshing and thirst quenching because uh beers made to be drunk like life and big gulps <laughs> that's what i like to tell people 
I want to I want to unpack this idea of character in Hellas because I think you're absolutely right, and it's certainly one of Joe, our managing editor's, uh, uh, common points that he hammers home over and over again. That just because it's Hellas doesn't mean it should lack in character or somehow be bland and just easy to drink. Um, that the best examples of Hellas have strong character, but building that character and knowing right when to you know, take it to that point of character where it doesn't become too much is a, is a delicate one and an important one. So let's talk about that in a second. But first, this episode is brought to you by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Whether you want to add depth to your next golden triple with classic notes of cinnamon, pepper, and clove, or artfully layer exotic zesty grains of paradise into a perfect ale, Adding botanicals to your brewing is an easy way to customize a delicious flavor profile. Mountain Rose Herbs has been providing organic herbs and spices to chefs, herbalists, and dedicated brewers for more than three decades. Learn more at mountainroseherbs.com and get 10% off your first order with the code CRAFTBEER10. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. They make your job easy by serving as your one-stop shop for everything you need to outfit your taproom and fans. Current trends include to-go drinkware, tie-dye prints, and portable coolers. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. So, Steve, this is a it is a kind of delicate question to talk about Hellas and building character in a beer that is also need, that needs to be easy to drink and a significant kind of quality. Talk to me about how you think about those hyper fine points of Hellas um, and maybe describe in a sensory kind of perspective what you your perfect Hellas, the Hellas that you make what it tastes like and you know what the kind of parameters for that flavor are so uh, to start with and and carlton mentioned this and i highly agree is if if i'm drinking a really nice german hellas say it's in a moss krugen the first thing you get when you put your lips up to the rim of the mug is the the sulfur there's a just a, a a tint a bit of sulfur that kind of creates this crisp uh, different character from an ale yeast. <clears throat> and uh, I think that just adds to the complexity of, of the beer. And in some ways, I think lager yeast, because it has that character, there's so many very neutral ale yeasts now that I think a lot, lagers, you know, prefer this, this, this is really clean thing. But I think there is oftentimes more going on with lager yeast because of that character, um, the, the sulfur, the sulfur dioxide that you get the yeast produces. And, and one of the ways you, I think Germans have that in their beers normally is because the Reinheitsgebot uh, purity law requires that they naturally carbonate the beer. You can't force carbonate. That's an added fifth ingredient. So we we uh, naturally carbonate our beer also. And I, I think as Carlton mentioned, you trap the, the CO2. You don't let it all blow off um, and gas off. So you retain a little bit more of that character <clears throat> and complexity. And then we, we do use German malt, and I like to <clears throat> excuse me tell people, I, no German malt's not better than American malt or this malt. It's but it, it, it tastes different. I think it's because of the growing conditions, the terroir, if you want to call it that. And we're trying to replicate a, a German lager, so I, I think it's important to use the malt, especially because it's a little bit. Um, richer, rounder, not quite as dry as domestic malt. So I think you get that character. And and then we 
we do decoction on our hellas. Uh, I think that adds a little bit of different malt character. I, my, my personal preference, I don't, I'm not a fan of caramel malt. So I think we use caramel malt and maybe one of our, our beers. Um, and I, I, I just like that fresh <clears throat> malt character. Um, and then um, hellas obviously is basically a single malt beer it's uh, mostly uh, pilsner malt but but even our dunkel we get that that dark brown color not by putting a lot of high color specialty malts in it we use uh, over 85 percent munich malt in that beer and it goes with all of our beers uh, our vienna lagers um, we use a base malt to create that color not a high color uh, specialty malt so we one of the things that's also difficult for what we do is we, we use four base malts in this brewery, Pilsner malt, um, Vienna malt, Munich malt, and, and, of course, wheat malt for our wheat beers. So um, it's a little bit different approach where you take subtle uh, things instead of, you know, you take a lot of Munich malt to create a flavor and a color as opposed to using a small amount of dark colored malt. You get a different um, flavor, and I think you get a little bit more approachable. I always feel that Germans are about uh, balance. It's a different approach to, to brewing and, and drinkability. And I, I love IPAs, and I love to get smashed in the mouth with, with hops um, and aroma, and, and I love it. But it's a different brewing style, and that, that's why it's good that you have breweries like us that do what we do, and you have really good I, IPA breweries. But it gives people a choice on a different approach to brewing. And I think that's what creates diversity in the craft beer market where somebody just really tries to focus on doing um, something a, a very special way and then provides those opportunities through various breweries on, on different beer styles and interpretations. You just threw out a whole bunch of things that I want to kind of follow in on. You mentioned that you only use floor malted malts. No. No, four malts. Oh, four malts. <laughs> four, four base malts. I, I would okay. say most breweries, and that's probably the English brewing tradition, you use a pale ale malt, and then you create color right. and malt character by using small amounts of, of specialty malts. And we do use specialty malts, but basically for our beers to get the color or flavor that we want, we focus on using a, a certain type of base malt. So... Uh, and Carlton will know the percentages better. Our, our Dunkel is mostly Munich malt. Our Vienna Lager is mostly Vienna malt. Our Pilsner is all Pilsner malt. But uh, we're not just trying to tweak color with the specialty malt. And I think that gives the, when you use a lot of a low color malt, you just get a, a very uh, subtle, different, um, balanced character that way. I mean, from a pragmatic kind of production brewery standpoint, it certainly restricts your ability to uh, find efficiencies by building most of your beers off of one or two base malts. Um, yeah, you know, yes. you can't just fill up a silo full of uh, of you know something and then can you know use that. Um, you know, from a, a kind of functional concern, that means you know that that changes the way that you produce beer, huh? Well, actually, I, I, just to jump in on that, I think that's um, uh, one of the reasons why a lot of breweries move that direction to using a base malt 
and then you just add a little bit of this little bit at to to get where you want on the color um but we we actually last year we made 16,400 I think barrels of beer and it was all um bagged in one bag at a time wow so we don't have a silo we don't use super sacks we don't have anything like that so actually logistically it's not complicated for us to keep making beer the way that we've made beer and adhering to the to the the uh, spirit of the recipes that kind of Steve had when the brewery was was begun it doesn't really matter that we use a bunch of Vienna malt and a bunch of pills, different base malts. Or it, you just grab a bag and dump it in the mill, whatever you need. There's no real logistic issue with, with that. Your poor, poor brewing staff. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I added it up last year. We did about a million pounds of malt, 55 pounds at a time. Colt and I are both sitting above the malt milling room right now and the, the, their, um, crushing malt right now it's probably louder in your room carl yeah i think there's probably getting a little feedback but it should only last i don't know 15 minutes they're actually just transferring malt right now you know when we do remote podcasts like this it's hard to capture some of the kind of background noise and spirit of the brewery so i I actually am (laughs) enjoying hearing some of that in the background um it's been uh, a while since i've been able to go to a brewery in person and so uh um Unlike you all that get to experience it more frequently, it uh, it does feel endearing and uh, you know and friendly to me. But um, so from that uh, you know that kind of malt perspective, since we're talking about that, um, talk to me about uh, choosing specific malts. You know there are multiple options available, obviously within any of these families of malts. Um, How do you develop a preference, and what has driven some of those choices you make about uh, you know the malt house that you're going to bring in from and the specific characters as well as the way that those malts function within the brew house. I don't think you're going to like the answer, but uh, we, <laughs> I, I, all that we, matters, we, or I'm not we only it. get, we only get malt from one place. Uh, hey, that's fair. fair from, enough. All I care about is <laughs> the true answer on this. So there's not a whole lot to discuss. So, yeah. Uh, Erex uh, is the malt supplier. Um, it's uh, right there, in sort of central central Germany. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, in six years ish, um, we've used like best malt maybe once or twice, and a little bit of Ironman. When we couldn't get the Erex because it's all shipped in on shipping containers, if we've had something get hung up. Or, you know, the train got stuck on the tracks or something and the malt didn't make it here. Maybe we use a little bit of something else, but only out of that necessity. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we really haven't done a lot of what you just asked about. We just buy Erex Pilsner malt, Erex Munich malt right down the line. Well, why did you make that decision then? then? I mean, you know, there, there has to be some thought process or preference that, that drives that. Well, I think Steve talked to Eric Toft one day. <laughs> I'll let him take it. See, there's the answer. It all goes back to Eric Todd. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did talk to some um, right. German brewers and uh, some American brewers that import malt. And uh, I had used, actually, Erex malt when I was a home brewer and, and liked it. Um, and I used Weirman and, and Best Malt in, in doing all of our test batches. But, uh, no, we got the malt in and we tried it and we liked it, so we never saw... Uh, sure. A need to, to, to change, and they've been a, a great 
partner. They worked with us, and I think they're happy that we did have a growing business. And I think there's we're a, a company that that they can point to that because I don't think they have a large import presence here in the United States yet. But we've been very happy with the malt, and they've got a good range of of uh, specifications for different varieties of malt that we uh, that we use. Uh, I want to talk to you then about hops, um, and, and I imagine you're going to tell me you use the same hops farm that Eric Toft uses too, but maybe not. Uh, before we do that, if you're looking to expand your craft brewery, look no further than Abe Beverage Equipment for complete brewing and packaging solutions. Abe has been a trusted partner for over 1,000 breweries worldwide and is known for their excellent service. Contact Abe today for a quote on a complete brew system at abeequipment.com. Abe offers turnkey solutions from 3 to 60 barrel brew houses and canning lines from 15 to 90 cans per minute. Visit abeequipment.com for complete brewery solutions. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep-dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Um, on that hops piece, uh, obviously you mentioned that German ingredients are important to you, um, but again, there's a range in terms of hop varieties of terroir and hops, even within Germany itself. Um, talk to me a little bit about making those kinds of selections and then, um, you know, for both Helles and then Pilsner, how you, uh, uh, you know, have envisioned that hops character and dialed something in that's exactly what you want. So um, I, I got introduced we get all of our hops from a single family hop farm sites family in the Hollertau in an area a town called Wonzak in the Hollertau Valley. So th- this hop farm is right down the, the, the road from where uh, Sam Adams gets their Hollertau or middle fruit hops. And I like to tell people, we also get our hops from the Hollertau, but we also get our malt from Germany too. So we, we take both major ingredients and, and get those from Germany. But uh, I have, he's been a great partner with us. And we just talked to him on the phone uh, this, this week and we're getting ready to place our order for the 2020 harvest. But he's been a super to work with. And I keep thinking we probably should diversify our suppliers a little bit in case there's a hailstorm in the Hollertau uh, and, and we have another access to hops. But um, we basically use um, Perlay as our main bittering hop, uh, Hollertau or Middlefrew, and Tradition for our late kettle hops. Uh, we do a couple of dry hop beers. Uh, we use a mandarina Bavaria, um, sort of a, a citrusy mandarina uh, character to it. Uh, we've gotten saws from from him before, uh, which are are not from his farm. But it's a it's a six hundred year old farm. I've I've been there several times. I've sat at the kitchen table and uh, had a beer or coffee and flammkuchen with his his mom and dad. I've been in the little tavern down this the road where all the old farmers are sitting around and remind me of my dad's hometown in Hoffman, Illinois. So um, it's just a, a pleasure working with them. He, he does great service and I, I think his hops are, are great too. But I, if Carlton's got some something else to add there. Well, I mean, it kind of connects with Erex. I mean, it's not broken, so why would we fix yeah. it? 
Um, and they, they're not too far apart, so they cooperate on shipping. Sometimes we can put our hop order on it with a malt order. Yeah, we've actually got our order. hops yeah. included with a malt shipment every year, so it's been convenient. Well, you know, and yeah. uh, I mean the hop, the hops are great. I don't know, I don't know what better hops we could get. And uh, Florian has year after year sort of suggested, um, made suggestions for hey, you know, the tradition is really great this year. You've got to buy some of it, even though we don't normally buy a lot of tradition. And like you know, he's been really helpful with uh, just making sure we get everything we need every year and getting getting the, the best hops he has. You know, I think there's that really wonderful connection between craft brewers and that kind of craft side of agriculture that is, um, you know, these small family owned farms. And it's fascinating that you can even build those relationships with, you know, European based growers to kind of, you know, create that connection. Um, how in that sense does, you know, when you mention you've got a great crop of tradition in a particular year, do you then think about how I make a different beer with that? Or do you then think, how could I incorporate that into one of our existing beers? What does that process look like for you? We have, I mean, we have reacted to um, actually a direct suggestions from Florian, but not often, maybe just two or three times uh, where he's said, oh, these, these hops are really great. You have to try these or you got to buy some of those. And then, okay, let's put some in. Uh, uh, let's make it part of the late hop edition on beer X or beer Y and then see, uh, see what we think. Um, so we have done that, but for the most part, I think we're more interested in consistency around here than, than just about anything else. You know, if you're going to make if you're going to make and sell a thousand barrels of Dunkel a month, then you're, you're more focused on making sure every bottle is the same as every other bottle than you are with, with playing with things like that. Yeah. From a sensory perspective, how would you describe the hops in your Pilsner? That's a good question. You know, how do you, and, and this is something I'm, I'm always, you know, fascinated by because brewers all build a mental standard for what their own thing should taste like. They build a brand standard, how they expect it to taste. Typically there's some intersection between taste buds and language that exists, even if that's just an internal language in, in brewers' minds, um, to understand where their own parameters are for these things and when things might get outside of those parameters. And so, you know, trying to talk about, or trying to, I, I always try to ask about what that language looks like for you. How do you build that mental picture and then define it for yourself? Well, I know what I like about our Pilsner, and that is, is that there isn't one particular quality that stands out. Um, so we use noble hops from, from Hollertau, and I think that they are balanced hops. So uh, middle fruit, for example, isn't known to have one specific strong character that, that you pick out right. immediately, say it's citrusy or it's grassy or something. It has a little bit of everything. It's a little bit floral. It's a little bit spicy. It might have just a little bit of fruit, some kind of fruit going on there. And so there isn't like a flavor that just jumps out, oh, this Pilsner tastes like this. It just has a nice, clean hop character, uh, the right level of bitterness. And it's just it's just something that, that, that you enjoy having. So I don't know what Steve would elaborate on that. Yeah, so I always describe a, a good Pilsner as, as the flavors are, are delicate. Um, they're there 
but they're balanced and they're delicate, and, and particularly the bitterness. I, I would describe Pills as a bitter beer, but one that doesn't necessarily seem bitter. Uh, it, it's got a very noble, delicate bitterness that is very um, refreshing, I think, because bitterness is one of those things that, that, that makes beer thirst-quenching, and that's why I think the particular style is great with a greasy steak or a pizza. It's one of the great uh, uh, partnerships in food and beer. But um, so, I, so that, and, and the malt character is very clean and crisp and delicate. And then the, the aroma in the Pilsner, we just use Lake Kettle hops or Whirlpool hops. And uh, so the aroma is very delicate. It's there. And it's almost when you drink a Hellas, which doesn't have the same aroma profile, and then you have Pils, you can tell there's, there's something there and it's pleasant and it's um, uh, enjoyable. But it, but it 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 just sort of something that hmm yeah that that's that's a nice little aroma that adds to but doesn't overpower anything in the beer. So um, and, and I and I think Carlton would agree the the first thing that goes off with the pills is that subtle uh, aroma character because the 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 oil the hop oils that create that are, are the first thing that that go on a beer as it, as it gets, gets older. And so, um, but th- that's how I describe our Pilsner. Yeah. I think that people would smell our Pilsner, especially they're freshed up and say, Oh yeah, it, I can, I can smell the hops. Yeah. I can, I can smell it. I can pick it up, but might not say something real specific about that, that aroma. And I think that's fine. I think that's, I think that's the way we yeah. want it. Where uh, where do you dial IBUs in for your Hellas and then for your Pilsner? Oh, <laughs> so, so Pilsner, uh, you know, that's something that has changed over the years a little bit. So we've come down to 32 um, uh, from 37. Uh, Hellas, we're down to, we've actually come down from where we started on that as well. I think we're at 20. Yeah, it was right 22 now. And, and now it's 20. Yeah, and it was 22. So that... Those are the two beers we've probably actually played with the most compared to any other style. Well, save maybe the Fest we, beer. We, we also, but these are just little changes we made, yeah. and then we taste it and see if we can pick up a difference and if we like it or not. So. What uh, what has driven those kinds of you know uh, lower uh, IBU levels? Just just a general preference, or um, you know, has that been consumer driven in some way or another? Most of the time, it's Steve having a glass of beer, <laughs> Are and, you uh, too? <laughs> and Steve will and Steve yeah. will say to me, "What do you think about this this Hellas? Do you think it's a this or that or you know whatever?" And we'll just get to talking, and then eventually we'll settle on an idea to make a little change or not, and then we'll sort of make that little change, track that batch through, and then try it and see if see if it, there's a big enough difference that we like that we stick with it. And so, yeah, the Hellas uh, and the Pilsner both have come down and stayed down. I guess we hmm. do like it a little less bitter. Let's uh, let's talk about your flagship Dunkel for a little while. You know, obviously, pale lagers seem to be the kind of primary focus for fellow brewers, um, and just this object of love and affection and this kind of common thread that um, unites lager lovers. But Dunkel, you know, because you've kind of found a German analog for you know a brown or amber ale that is 
you know, typically not um, as available in today's craft beer market, but still loved by beer drinkers. Um, it's just created this opportunity for you to create a beer that gets out there in a, in a wider you know way in the market. Uh, certainly, the state of Missouri has um, uh, plenty of American light lagers available to it, but uh, but not a lot of you know certainly not a you know kind of amber brown lager kind of approach. Um, Talk to me a little bit about kind of formulating the idea, and then you know we already talked a little bit about how you use large amounts of base malt, um, but uh, let's talk about how that you know that vision for creating that beer came around, and then um, how you keep it uh, you know crisp but also flavorful and easy to drink. So the, the recipes are basically based off recipes I got from from, from German brewers, and I, I think the first thing that you would notice if you looked at how a German makes a beer, it's it's uh, it, it's Munich malt. And uh, Dermans had various recipes when I was there. I'm sure Carlton got some from from the brewing school there also. Um, so I, I think that's one difference. We use a lot of low-color amber Munich malt to create a, a deep, rich color. And it changes the flavor because when you're you're adding a, a darker crystal malt or something. You're, you're getting more roast and darker kind of flavors, which I would say our beer is very toasty because we use that and a couple of other uh, small amounts of, of, of malt. But it, it's really got a very um, full body malty um, character, but it's it leans very much towards like I call it toasted bread crust with a touch of caramel and and maybe molasses in, in the care so it's only 18 ibu so i think when people drink that they're surprised at how drinkable and approachable it, it is um it doesn't have those because oh i don't like dark beers because i don't like those harsh roasted acrid flavors which i don't think we have we just have a, a hint of toast in it so i think people are surprised that it's um approachable I also think having lived in Texas and seen the success of Shiner Bach sure, down there, sure. I think people who can uh, find a beer approachable that looks sort of exotic um, are, are attracted to that for, for some reason. Um, but for whatever reason, it's it's been very uh, successful, and I and I really like that beer too. I don't drink it as much as the pale lagers, but it's it's incredibly mellow and malty for a 5% uh, beer just because of the, the high-quality malts and types of malts we use. And I think there's also, uh, I don't know if this was part of your question or not, but the success of the beer, I think, is is at least in part due to the fact that it's brown. Um, you know, it's not a pale lager, so you can add variety to a draft wall Right. Uh, that may already have four or five or six or eight pale lagers. And uh, so when our distributors first went in and started to try to sell our beer, um, it maybe it was a little bit easier to get a, a brown lager I, on. I don't know. We'll, we'll never know for sure. But um, but the beer also tastes really good. I think I think the Ardunkel is just a really fantastic beer. Um, it does taste like bread crust, and it's not... It's not the same as the other brown lagers I think that I've that I've had from a lot of other other and, breweries. And I would say this pr- probably in terms of competitions and critics' ratings, uh, 
we have gotten some awards, but it's probably one of our most least um, recognized beers. And I think some judges don't understand what they're drinking. I would call this a very old style Dunkel that, that was made back before World War One, before the malting technology was really sophisticated and the, the, the malt color from a single killing batch might have various colors because the heat couldn't be evenly distributed. So you got this this color from a lot of lower colored malt and it wasn't created by adding those caramel malts. So I, I think when I taste a river, I, I haven't found one that has the same malt character that we do because I, I think we take a different approach in building the malt um, grist bill for, for this beer. And it, it just has, it just tastes different than other people's. And I think when you're comparing it for purposes of, of uh, judging or, or, or whatever, it's, it's like, what, what is this doing here? <laughs> you know, because it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit different. Wouldn't you agree, Carlton? That, I think it is different. And yeah. I, you know, I went to GABF every year, many years in a row. And um, I would always try, if I could, the Dunkles that had won a medal, you know, out on the floor in the after session. And uh, I don't think I ever tasted one that tasted like ours. Um, yet we're... I, I don't want to say I know this for a fact, but we're probably selling more Dunkel than any other craft brewery that I've ever heard of. Uh, um, from my perspective, so I think it, you're right it on that. It must be a pretty, yeah. um, you know, but that there is so right. uh, it, it 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 must be a pretty good beer, you know. The the court of public opinion and those that are voting with their dollars is ultimately the 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 real measure of success. Um, beyond just peer recognition within you know the brewing world, uh, when you can do both, then that becomes this kind of you know holy grail. Sometimes that peer recognition leads to that commercial success. Sometimes that commercial success is completely divorced from that recognition. Um, both of them are valid modes, um, but it is a very cool thing that you've been able to sell, you know build a flagship brand out of something that. Uh, is just so different than what other brewers are leading with flagship brands out there. And I think you're probably right that uh, with a lot of pale lagers already on tap room walls or tap uh, uh, lists and whatnot, that it is something else. And also, you know, people don't make brown ales in the way that they used to. And so when there are people looking for that kind of thing, that kind of mellow, warming, you know, slightly nutty, slightly toasty kind of, of beer, they say I like this, and that becomes something that uh, you know your your bartender can recommend to them, and uh, uh, gives them another avenue for it. Plus, you know, yours has that kind of endearing quality of of familiarity to it, even though no one knows why that might be. Um, Let me interject that I think some of it also has to do with um, the lack of caramel malt yeah. in, in the beer. I think uh, one differentiating factor between Dunkel and a brown ale, other than the esters, um, of course, which would be present or not present, is that presence of the caramel malt, which makes it so that if you want to drink six beers while you're watching your favorite baseball team, uh, the Dunkel just goes down easier. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a more drinkable, I don't want to use the word crushable. It's a 13 <laughs> yeah. Play-Doh 5% beer. But, right, right. you know, it, it's got a higher degree of drinkability to me personally um, because it doesn't have that caramel malt that over time can kind of cloy things up a little bit in your on your palate and sort of exhaust your palate a little bit. This is just a very clean bread crust flavor that your palate generally does not get tired of. 
as much. And, and I would say there's there's a comparison to this if you look at uh, pale ales and IPAs. <clears throat> Twenty years ago, everybody had a, a fairly. I think they were darker more caramel malted. So if you look at most of the IPAs that are coming on the market now, they're much, much paler than they were 15 or 20 sure, years ago. Sure. And I and I think that's what people are recognizing is that strong caramel malt flavor reduces the drinkability of some of those, those beers. And you're seeing a much uh, paler IPA today than you did uh, in years past. Yeah. Let's um, let's talk about uh, some of the other kinds of lager uh, projects that you all have embarked on. Uh, I know last year for our best in beer issue, Carlton, you were driving your GABF entries out to uh, you know to Colorado for the the Great American Beer Festival and dropped off uh, some beers for us at the office for our best in beer issue. Um, you know, which by the way, that deadline for that is coming up uh, a week from this Friday, August uh, August twenty eighth is our deadline for our twenty twenty best in beer issue. Um, but I digress. Uh, you know, I, you have uh, been bringing some big kind of doppelbox, some big um, uh, different types of Germans, uh, you know, kind of rooted beers, but also kind of pushing into some more creative directions with these larger beers. Also, let's talk a little bit, uh, you know, before we finish up here about some of these more, uh, uh, let's just say boundary pushing or, or, uh, edgy kind of German inspired beers that you all are, are playing with on the bigger side of things. Well, I think our most successful, um, I don't know, boundary pushing beer that we've ever made, was an idea I had, I don't know when it was exactly, maybe a few years ago, was to just double the gravity of Dunkel. Uh, so it's the exact same grist bill. There's no change in that. And uh, it's just brewed to a much higher um, starting gravity, and it's a 10% alcohol version of Dunkel. We call it Dunkelbach, which I guess in Germany means a, a beer style, but here in Kansas City, because you can get Dunkel just about anywhere right now, it kind of has a a, a reference to that very popular uh, beer, and uh, called called Dunkelbach, and that beer just came out great. I mean, it's such a drinkable beer for what it is at ten percent. So, I don't know if you would call that pushing boundaries. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is for us, but uh, we do have a couple of in, beer in the world styles of loggers that, that is certainly considered a, a yeah. uh, pushed uh, pushed boundary. Yeah, and it just a straight um, linear scale of irregular Dunkel and, and produced that beer and no, no other changes. Yeah, no huh. other changes to the grist bill. The IBUs went up a little bit because I think you do need to do that for the uh, much higher residual gravity. So you do need a little bit more IBUs. So it's not eighteen right. IBUs like the Dunkel is, but anyway. But it called that I think that beer originated when, for whatever reason, we had a very efficient uh, brew day and we had more dunkel left in the the kettle after knockout well, I, did, I did that on purpose yeah okay yeah, all right. yeah. that's how originally how <laughs> we then, made dunkel is we, we just boiled down more yeah, yeah. so so yeah. it was a it was a increase in the gravity through boiling and now it's it's more through an increased uh grist bill but um so we yeah we do play around we're we don't do everything just the same way every time <laughs> but we are working on developing um an IPL um, that will bottle our first iteration of that tomorrow uh, and try. So we we will we will try a couple things here and there. Um, 
the total volume of our production that goes into things like that is very sure. small. Um, but uh, if you count up all the seasonal beers in our core four German brands, I mean, that's got to be 95 to 97% of what we do. But we do have that IPL coming out. And we had made a, a beer called Der Bauer, which is a uh, dry, harp, dry hopped farmhouse ale. But we made it with all German ingredients and um, got a yeast strain from the Alsace Valley that was French, but we like to say German too. I guess they speak German around there. So, um, yeah, so we've played around a little bit with things like that, but nothing nothing that the modern craft brewer would consider boundary pushing. We, we, <laughs> haven't, <laughs> we haven't put any fruits or vegetables or spices or, or um, you know, purees or anything like that in our beer. Well, you know, in a world yeah. where everyone's doing it, I guess it can be transgressive to not do it, right? Um, you know, there's a uh, – for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And, you know, I think that's one of, one of the cool things about beer today is that um, it's not just one thing and that all of these things can exist and that, uh, you know, that even beer consumers are a strange beast these days. And I see plenty of hardcore beer consumers who – are trading for pastry stouts and also drinking a lot of lager and uh, you know and so it, it you know it can be it's a strange one where you know i think we have one idea around certain beer consumers but they're growing even more complex than we're used to that and uh, you know i think one of the things that you all do that's really fascinating is you've turned people into craft beer consumers who may not necessarily have considered themselves craft beer consumers you know they weren't just drawn to you know this idea of craft beer because they had to have something different. They just like good beer and you cre created an option for them and, um, you know, and created some beers that were interesting and that, that made them want to continue to purchase them. And so that, uh, when it comes to the broader world of beer, uh, breweries that create that audience and not, and don't just simply try to take a piece of the existing audience, you know, those are breweries that should be celebrated. That wasn't really a question, oh, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on that note, on that note, um, we typically close with a, a uh, an important question, which is, what does success look like for you all? What what is the ultimate vision for Casey Beer Company, um, and how how will you know when you have achieved that success? Steve, I think that one's a good one for you. Well, uh, certainly, I the first step is it starts with brewing um good beer and i'm i'm proud of the the beer we make our our brewers and, and carlton's whole whole team is um i i think focused on exceptionalism i think they get what we're trying to do is something different and we have a high standard of what we're trying to do but it would it'd be great tasting uh beer and then um making sure we um get people a chance to try that beer and try it at the peak of freshness. We haven't expanded our distribution very far from Kansas City, but we're focused on producing good-tasting beer uh, like you would find in Germany and serving at the same level of freshness uh, that you would get if you were actually having a beer in Germany. So that's basically our mission statement, and uh, it just uh, continues with making great beer, Delivering it uh, fresh and, and, and at high level of quality, 
and we do work very hard to market our beer, but we are marking, uh, I'd say we are very much focused on marketing the quality of our beer and hoping people uh, can experience what we think is something different that we're doing that adds to their diversity uh, choices in the, in the craft beer business. So uh, we, we have a, a fairly large number of investors in this brewery and, and uh, financial success is always uh, a goal, but um, we want that financial success because we're making the right kind of beer. That's well said. Are they local investors that care about uh, you know that uh, serving the local community and being able to come in and also they, drink your beer? They are. <laughs> they uh, they they do uh, promote our beer, and that's been a very uh, positive aspect of having uh, a large number of local investors. For sure. Yes. For sure. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Set your compass by RAR North Star Pills. Mountain Rose Herbs offers the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Grandstand is your choice for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. Abe Beverage Equipment offers complete brewing and packaging solutions. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Um, Steve Carlton, if people want to find... Actually, Steve, you could probably answer this one. If people want to find uh, KC Beer Company, uh, where do they find you all? So our website is kcbier.com, kcbier.com, and our Twitter handle is at kcbierco, at kcbierco. So uh, I don't know what our Instagram (laughs) is, but... Um, that's close enough. <laughs> and if you're in the Kansas City, Missouri area, uh, of course, yeah. stop by, check them out, have a right. pint or three. We, we have a, a tasting room and we have a, a very traditional Munich style beer garden. I think uh, they would enjoy uh, social distancing, uh, notwithstanding, although we are open and it's been a great boost uh, to have an outdoor seating area during this recent pandemic. Well, Steve Holly, Carlton Graham, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I've appreciated talking about logs yep. with you all. Cheers. You're welcome. We enjoy we enjoy your magazine, so thank you very awesome. much. Thank you all so much. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.